You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We all have an interest in what we can't see, especially bits of biology that outnumber us and that make us sick. Now, if you're a virus hunter, you can wait for the virus to come to you or like Nathan Wolf, you can go to the virus. We were working in Cameroon in Central Africa, and we were interested in retroviruses. So this is the class of viruses that HIV is a part of. And so the question was, look, if HIV can cross, maybe there are other retroviruses out there in animals that could cross into humans, potentially spread and cause pandemics. Uh, one of these particular groups of viruses was called the simian foamy virus. And simian foamy virus is a diverse group of viruses uh, that infects just about every group of non-human primate has their own particular form of simian foamy virus. Foamy, is that one of the symptoms? or? Yeah, so they're called simian foamy viruses because if you take these viruses and you put them in a laboratory into a culture of living cells and you look at that culture under a, a microscope, uh, these viruses are deadly to the cells. And so the appearance you get in looking under a microscope is sort of a foamy appearance, which is what you get from the virus having killed all these different cells. And so simian foamy virus was this very interesting virus. We knew it was in these animals that were being hunted by people. And so what we decided to do is to go out into some of these very rural areas and to look at people who had really high exposure to animals through hunting and butchering of these animals. We simply looked at their blood and found evidence that these individuals were infected with these simian foamy viruses. So we knew that this new retrovirus had crossed from animals into people. And it was, you know, from our perspective, a very interesting and exciting finding because it really demonstrated that uh, that these were not some sort of random, stochastic, once-in-a-lifetime things, that there was a constant process of viruses entering into humans, and it could lay the foundations for a system which would allow us to potentially predict and prevent future events like HIV. We'll find out exactly how Nathan tracks these emerging viruses later in the show. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science. But before we dive into the matter of pandemics, Really, I'd like to know, what the heck are these tiny terrors we call viruses anyhow? Well, viruses are more than just agents of illness that cross from chimps into humans that make us sick. They, they actually represent a whole world of activity, of evolution and replication with humans and independently of humans. And you know... It's sort of mind-boggling to think about it. As far as we know, every cellular form of life on the planet is infected with viruses. And this almost by definition makes viruses the most diverse forms of life on the planet. We have this sort of sense that viruses 
are these sort of nasty little villains that are out there to knock us down. And that's really all about human perception. It's about us interfacing for the first time with sort of something that was really quite alien from ourselves. It's sort of we have these fantasies about encountering aliens and the first thing we'll be doing is to exchange messages and tell each other you know, where we are located in the, in the universe. The reality is we have a lot of experience of exactly what it's like to encounter something that's completely alien. And that would be our interaction with viruses, which we've only really known about for the last hundred or so years. And of course, the first questions we'll ask are, are they alive? Second questions we'll ask is, sort of, what do they look like? The third question we'll ask is, are they harming us? Interestingly, and I think there's an interesting reflection on the nature of humanity, is we're not thinking about, oh, how do we have a wonderful, you know, beautiful relationship with you? We ask the question of how do we eradicate the ones that we don't like, and how do we manipulate the ones that we do like to help serve us? Okay, clearly viruses are ubiquitous. They affect every form of life, so they're important. I have to say, I've seen plenty of pictures of magnified viruses, and to me, they look like glued-up ping-pong balls. Really? I think they look a little bit like meteorites with fuzz or something like that. No, more like mines in the ocean with those sensor things sticking out in all directions. I mean, they really do look alien. Any thoughts on whether or not alien life would be a virus, given the preponderance of viruses on this planet? You know, look, if, if we're going to think about alien life, it seems like one reasonable way of starting would be to say, what is the diversity of life like on the planet that we know has life, i.e. our own? And the answer is, despite what our perceptions and our senses want to tell us, namely that life is big things like whales and humans and elephants or even ants, the reality is that the dominant life on our planet is microbial. So if we were using our own planet, which is the only thing we really know of, to guess what life will look like elsewhere, we would have to say that the most common forms of life would likely be things that we wouldn't even be able to see. Indeed, when you think of viruses, the adjectives that come to my mind would be small, diminutive, tiny, wee, microscopic, itsy-bitsy, invisible to the eye, but not... Mega. Mega virus is a virus that researchers pulled from the waters off the coast of Chile. Now, this virus is so immense, it's easily visible in an ordinary microscope, and it beats out in size the previous winner for big-sized viruses, a virus named Mimi. That's Mimi virus. But Mega brings to mind the big and oozy blob that terrorized moviegoers in the 1950s. Every one of you watching this screen, look out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. But virologist Vincent Racaniello says we don't have to worry about being blobified with the megavirus, although it is large. Megavirus is bigger than any virus we've ever isolated. It is big enough to see in a light microscope. Most viruses you can't see without an electron microscope, a really powerful, highly magnifying microscope. So these megaviruses are huge. Well, all right. Now, a virus, as I understand it, it's just a, a bit of packaging that contains a whole lot of genetic material. How many genes does this megavirus have inside? Megaviruses have 1,120 genes which is way more than any other virus has. Well, well, can you tell me what a typical virus might have? You know? 
some viruses have two genes. A typical virus can have a dozen or 50 or 100, but this is way bigger than any virus that we know of. Now, why does it have so many genes? What is it doing that requires so much more hardware than your average virus? I mean, your average virus could give you a cold or polio or, or something. What, what, what is it that this megavirus is doing? All right, so to answer that, let's think about what viruses need to do. As you said, they're really just a package of genes. And the most efficient viruses have very few genes. They get into a cell and they use most of what they need from the cell. So they steal processes from the cell. You need to make a little energy, we'll take the genes for that from the cell. So you don't, in principle, viruses don't have to carry a lot of genes in. So why does this one have a lot? We think this is kind of a missing link of virology. We think this is an old virus that maybe is near the origin of viruses and it hasn't gotten rid of all of its genes that it doesn't need yet. So, so we think that's why there are a lot left over. So it's just inefficient. It's got too many parts. Yes, and it could be that in some environments it needs those parts. Maybe as time goes on it'll lose them. The way we think viruses arose, there are a couple of theories. One of them is that a cell became a virus and it threw out genes along the way. So maybe we're looking at something early on in that process. Well, where did this virus come from? Did you find it just sitting on your lab bench there? Where, 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 well, where'd you find it? Now, of course, it? I didn't find it, but other researchers have found it. They found this one, the uh, megavirus, off the coast of Chile in the salt water. Uh, and it infects an amoeba. So they, they actually took salt water and they let the amoeba grow. And I should say the protists, which are the, the protozoans. And they found it in that water. And the, the other virus related to mega, which is Mimi virus, was found in a cooling tower in France. Now, you said that it infects protists. Can you be more specific? I mean, to, to what life form is this megavirus uh, an annoyance or maybe something even fatal? So far, both of these big viruses that we're talking about, the Mimi virus and the megavirus, uh, have been found to infect amoeba, which are single-celled organisms. That's what we call protists or protozoans. It's not known if they infect humans. There's no evidence that they do, and it, there's no evidence that they cause any human disease. Uh, whether they infect other kinds of organisms remains to be seen. It's very interesting that you found Mimi in France and Mega in Chile, and they both infect uh, amoeba. And it could be that that's partly related to all these genes that they have. Amoeba tend to eat a lot of bacteria, and maybe these viruses pick up some of their genes from those, from those bacteria. What do they do to an amoeba? If I'm an amoeba sort of, you know, pseudopodding my way around through life and I get infected by a megavirus, uh, would I notice? Yeah, you'd be dead. Oh, I guess I'd notice. <laughs> the viruses kill the amoeba. And, and how do they do that? Well, they get inside the amoeba and they take over the, the whole cell. They commandeer all the... Uh, all the material that the amoeba has and eventually they break open. How exactly they break open isn't clear. But the fact that they do kill them is probably ecologically important. These viruses could probably regulate, you know, populations of amoeba out there in the wild. So the function of these viruses, of this megavirus, is only, I mean, it, it probably doesn't have the, the job description, go kill amoeba. It's just to make more of itself? Exactly. Viruses have one goal, to make more of themselves. And some of them kill their hosts, and others don't, actually. So killing is not required to make more viruses. What's, what's needed is to duplicate your, your virus particle, and however you can achieve that, uh, that works.
So they're really uh, what are called von Neumann machines. They're, they're self-replicating machines. I mean, uh, people argue about whether viruses are alive or not, but they, they just seem to be made of these molecular parts. They don't, you know, they don't compose symphonies or they don't do anything that we associate with life, certainly not intelligent life. They're just machines to make more themselves. Well, that's probably dissing them a bit because I think, and many virologists think, that they've played a huge role in evolution. They, they can move genes around from organism to organism. Uh, they can probably generate new genes that are then used by other organisms. And they may have some protective features against other pathogens. So I think if we took all the viruses away from the Earth, we can't do that. But if we did, I think life would have problems. Well, that brings up the question of where these guys came from. I mean, we know that there was life on Earth three and a half billion years ago, maybe four billion years ago. If we could go back to those very early days of terrestrial biology, would we find viruses? You know, that's an experiment I've always wanted to do. I'm waiting for someone to make a time machine for me, and then I can go back and sample <laughs> that, that primordial environment. The answer is we don't know, and I doubt we ever will know because you can only work with what you have today on the planet. Uh, there are a couple of hypotheses. One is that there were first cells, and then bits of the genetic information broke away from those cells and became viruses. So one idea is that the viruses started out small, and then they began to acquire genes from other cells and other viruses, and they got bigger and bigger. So the Mimi megaviruses suggest that that's not the case. They suggest that viruses came from cells in a big way. They, a, a big piece of the cell came off, or you could look at it another way. Cells lost a lot of genes and became viruses. And the reason we think that is because you can find some genes in these Mimi and megaviruses that are not found in any virus and which are found in the cells that they infect. Finally, Vincent... Uh, if they were to find a virus that's bigger than the megavirus, I mean, what are they going to call it? Mega's already taken. Will it be a gigavirus? What will it be? Well, this is interesting because the authors are having a problem with their nomenclature, and they admit that Mimi was probably not a good name because it, people make fun of it. So they decided that they're going to call these all megavirus, and then the second part of the name will be where the virus came from. So in the case of this megavirus, it will be Chiliensis. Got it. So, uh, well, you can hope that you don't find too many viruses in the same spot. Vincent Racaniello, thank you very much for talking with me. My pleasure. I always like to talk about viruses. Vincent Racaniello is a virologist at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's host of the podcast This Week in Microbiology and the author of the Virology Blog. Okay. Well, to be clear, a virus is this. On the outside, you've got a protein coat, but that's only to protect what's inside. At heart, a virus is really just a set of instructions for replicating a gene. Okay, so it's just a package of genes. But the big question is, are viruses alive? Now, you think that they would be because they affect every other form of life on the planet. Well, the question, are viruses alive, forms a lot of conversation at cocktail parties, in fact, and you'd think it would have a straightforward answer. But for virologist Robert Gifford, others working in the field, it's not so straightforward. Are you saying that scientists don't have a working definition of what's alive or not? Isn't something that's alive is something that metabolizes? No, to me, that's personally, I mean, it's my personal opinion, but I think that's more in the realm of philosophy than science. Go on, say more about that. 
Well, I think perhaps the defining property of life is replication. So going by that definition, you could actually extend to a number of things which are not considered living. For example, fire is something which, you know, you could conceivably characterize as, as something with a property of being able to replicate itself. Fire? Yeah. Would you say fire is alive? No. But a virus might be alive. Mm, um, well, do you mind if I sort of uh, put a question to you? Yeah, please. I mean, what is it to you what defines something as alive? My first thought is that it, it's something that is sentient, but that is not necessarily the case with plants and so forth. Yeah. Um, right. So maybe it's something that is that that metabolizes, that undergoes some kind of chemical change, but then I can think of things that go under well, chemical change, and so that you can of, see why I'm struggling. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, very loosely, you could say that fire has a metabolism. It involves chemical change. Going to the other end of the scale in astronomy, you know, people talk about the life and birth and death of stars and um, the evolution of galaxies. So, you know, I, I really think it's a difficult issue and... Uh, there really is, I don't think, a straightforward answer to your question. Next, more from Robert Gifford about the fossil viruses within us all and how new viruses emerge to infect humans. We're going viral on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, not all viruses are infectious or contagious, but some are. And, of course, it's only natural to be concerned about those, especially when you're in a large crowd and you hear a sneeze. Right, or you're trying to avoid touching anything on public transportation. But how exactly do viruses get into humans? Because a lot of them do. Measles, mumps, polio, rabies, influenza, HIV, simian foamy virus. In short, viruses are opportunistic. If you had to come up with one word for them, they're always on the move, looking for ways to promote themselves in the biological world, and they have highly evolved strategies for doing so. As for the viruses that make your body their home and cause the flu, well, you can thank our feathered friends, our avian allies. Viral ecologist Nathan Wolf splits his time from traveling to viral hotspots around the world to shuttling to his office in busy downtown San Francisco. And he says the term bird flu is redundant because almost all influenza originates in birds. It does seem that most of the diversity of these viruses are in bird species, and in particular, the migratory waterfowl, things like ducks, for example, seem to have the most diversity of these particular, this particular branch of the sort of viral tree, if you will. And the interesting thing, though, is the, the, these viruses, and many viruses, uh, are not restricted to one host. So even though they may sort of develop for some number of years and exist and evolve within a particular context of one or a couple of different hosts, when hosts have contact with 
each other, they have the potential to jump over. And that's exactly what happens to influenza viruses. These viruses jump from migratory waterfowl to domestic birds like chicken. They jump from chickens subsequently to pigs. They can go directly from migratory waterfowl to pigs. They can go to horses. They can go directly to humans. They can go from humans back into pigs. And so what happens is this very interesting web of relationships as these viruses move from host to host. And then an added layer of complexity that is really sort of fascinating for many of us that study these things is that if two distinct viruses that are sufficiently closely related, and sometimes even fairly distantly related, but that's a lower probability, end up in the same host cell, every once in a while, the viruses will actually create hybrid mosaic daughter viruses. And so it's very much analogous to sexual reproduction, that basically these viruses will mix and match their genes together uh, in processes we think of as recombination or reassortment. That's the scientific jargon for it. But effectively, what they will do is they'll create completely novel viruses that will have bits and pieces of both of the parent viruses. So, so it sounds like you can have a bird virus in, in a waterfowl or in a pig. You would have a pig virus. And the viruses have the ability to acquire novelty. One way to do it is to just mutate which just happens randomly. But the other is the process you described. Two viruses come together and they, and they swap. They do an exchange, like a gift exchange or something we might have. And that's how you acquire a new virus. But, but how does a virus then go from, let's say, a pig, where this event has occurred, into a human? In terms of how actually one of these agents would move around, I mean, These viruses transmit in different ways and different species, but it's often going to be the direct contact in the case of influenza viruses between something like a pig and a human. So often these are going to occur in situations like farming settings where you have individuals who are working with pigs, and it might be respiratory transmission between the pig and the human. That's probably the most common way that that you would have that particular kind of transmission. But these Viruses in general, when we we sort of break outside of the influenza viruses, each of them have their own particular ways of surviving and uh, transmitting. And there's some, you know, common pathways. Sometimes it can be an insect that moves a virus from place to place. You can think of something like the West Nile virus. Um, Yellow fever would be another example of one of those. In some situations, these things can move through water. Um, In some situations, they can basically just sort of hang out as we, we call them sort of fomites, that they would just exist on the surface of, say, a table or something. And then some of them require much more direct contact. A lot of the viruses that we've spent time studying in places like Central Africa probably require blood-blood contact, and so that it would require, for example, the hunting and butchering of, of an animal, say a wild animal that had one of these interesting viruses. And it is sort of interesting to think about that, though, that you know, that, that movement, most of those will be failures. And the, the analogy that I like is to sort of think of, you know, humans trying to colonize Mars. It's going to be very difficult to colonize Mars. We're probably going to send a lot of probes into Mars before we're capable of actually making our way and living as a species on the planet. And I think that's one way to think about viral cross-species transmission is that there's sort of a constant pinging and, and then followed by mutation and, again, the sort of mixing of genes, recombination, reassortment, pinging again. And, and only eventually will you get the sort of right shuffle, the right combination 
of genetic information and traits in these viruses that will lead to effectively uh, the royal flush, if you will, that means that it can get in and spread in this new host. Well, let's talk about how then you track some of these emerging viruses, first starting with just where the global hotspots are. You mentioned farms and and also Africa. Uh, Are those two of the big hotspots? The number of viruses is going to relate to the diversity of the animals that that house these viruses. So if you look around the world and you sort of imagine the hotspots of diversity of wild mammals and mammals in general, obviously there's a lot more wild animals than there are domestic animals. That's gonna be a good start. And then you're gonna be wanting to look at situations where you have a lot of contact and interface between animals and human populations. Um, And that could be, you know, say diversity of insects that are biting uh, animals and humans levels of hunting and butchering, which is one of the big factors we focus on, and range of other different factors. And then we'd look at sort of population centers, places that are still relatively isolated, uh, maybe more likely to be sort of deluged with interesting new viruses, but they may be less likely to contribute those viruses to pandemics that would affect the entire planet. Although, of course, fewer and fewer places are isolated now. So we tend to work in places that have a really high diversity of wild animals, where there's a lot of close contact between humans and animals. Uh, And that means, you know, for us putting ourselves in places like Africa and Southeast Asia. But it's not limited to those locations. It's anywhere where we have sort of interesting connections between humans and animals um, and where we can set up good infrastructure to monitor the sort of portal of entry of these viruses into humanity and to catch what's crossing over into us. Nathan Wolf is a viral ecologist and the author of The Viral Storm. We'll hear more about his innovative approach to global viral forecasting later in the show. this whole scenario has me worried about the kinds of viruses that could, you know, hop from species to species, species I never see in my daily life, and then eventually hop onto me. Well, you may take some comfort in knowing that viruses have always been in you. There are ancient viruses in your genome right now. Can you feel them? Uh, They're they're surging. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you cannot feel them. They're codes for viruses, but fortunately, they're extinct. Now, most of them are from a family of viruses called retroviruses. HIV belongs to this family, as does simian fomivirus, which we heard about earlier. Retrovirus? Is that a virus that likes shoulder pads or disco balls, maybe Buddy Holly? Of course, most forms of life encode their genetic information in DNA or in RNA. But retroviruses do their own thing. They pack their information into RNA. And when they enter a host cell, they force the host to convert that RNA to DNA. We won't go into how exactly they do that. But now the virus is not RNA, a strand of RNA. It's a strand of DNA. Now the next thing they do... They hijack the host cell's native DNA and they insert their newly made viral DNA into that then go on to replicate as part of the DNA of the host cell. Now this makes them retro because most of life goes from DNA to RNA to create a protein. And these guys, well... They're doing this backwards. Retroviruses are of a particular interest to paleovirologists. Now, this is a new field, paleovirology. The study of old is paleo, fossil viruses. 
And it turns out that while 2% of the genes in your genome are all that's necessary to make you you... 8% of those genes are extinct fossil viruses, says evolutionary virologist Robert Gifford. Of course, much of that virally derived DNA is very ancient indeed. And we should be clear that it's not usually able to encode or make a virus. When we talk about fossil viruses, how old are fossil viruses? How long have these viruses been with us? Millions of years. Millions? Millions. So they were inserted into our genome, into the human genome, before modern humans existed? Yeah, uh, before modern primates existed in, in some cases. Now, do we know whether any of these viruses did express themselves and create any changes or bring any illness to their hosts? Yeah, many different types of relationship are possible. There are parasitic relationships, clearly, but also commensal or symbiotic relationships between organisms and their viruses. And the same really applies to endogenous viruses. So they can cause a lot of problems sitting there in the genome. In fact, a good example is in the koala population in Australia, which is already under threat. It appears that relatively recently, so we're talking within the last 100 years, a retrovirus has invaded the koala genome, and, it, and that virus makes these animals sick and is considered a potential threat, actually, to the conservation of the species, I believe. But these viruses, I mean, they're called fossil viruses for a reason, because they've gone extinct. So we shouldn't be under the impression that if a virus inserts itself into our genome, even today, mm -hmm. there's a possibility of that, that if we pass it on to our children or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, that that virus will manifest itself, will present itself in a disease form or whatever else it might be. I mean, could these viruses come alive again? In humans, it doesn't seem like that's very likely at all. So over millions of years, every time the genome replicates, it tends to pick up some mutations. And these viral sequences, on the whole, they're generally not doing anything useful in the host genome. So what tends to happen from one generation to the next is that they gradually deteriorate. Or you can have insertion of other pieces of DNA into the viral reading frame, which, which essentially destroys the reading frame. Right, which scrambles the whole code. It's like taking a, a sheet of, of text that you might be reading from a novel or something and scrambling all the, the sentences and the words. You can no longer follow the narrative. And in this case, it would no longer be able to express itself. So if we took a total hypothetical, someone who had smallpox, which is brought about by a virus, if that virus had been inserted into the genome, what you're saying is the child of that adult who had had smallpox wouldn't necessarily get smallpox, or the grandchild or the great-grandchild. It wouldn't well, express itself. This is something that, that happens over a long time. So um, going back to the example with the koala bears, if we were able to sort of project a million years from now, that virus may have stopped replicating. But at the moment... It's in the koala genome and it's making virus uh, and it's, it's causing disease. So endogenous viruses may be dead on arrival but, or but they that, may continue to replicate. But, so. but that means that an infectious virus can start off as an infectious disease and then become a genetic one. That's right. Wow. Let's continue with the idea that they're, they're fossils right now, okay? Maybe it's just because that helps me sleep at night. Sure. And fossils are useful in the, the record because they can tell us something about the past. And so I wonder what fossil viruses can tell us about our past. 
yeah, from my point of view, that's absolutely the most interesting aspect. So what's great about being able to find these endogenous sequences is that they can give you a really robust date. So, for example, if you have an endogenous virus which inserted into the primate genome before humans diverged from chimps, then you expect to find that sequence at exactly the same location in both humans and chimps. If you do that, what you essentially have is a means to date that virus. You, it's very unlikely that, because retroviruses typically, they insert randomly into the genome. So if you can find a viral insertion at precisely the same location in both chimpanzees and humans, that's telling you that virus inserted into the hominid lineage before those two species split. It's really the only form of retrospective data that we have for doing that. You know, Robert, there's been some talk, at least what I've read, about bringing some viruses back to life. Yeah. Um, is that a possibility? <laughs> and why would someone want to do that? Um, it is a possibility. I think right at the outset, I should say that what it usually means is bring a small part of a virus back to life. So this isn't a Jurassic Park situation where we imagine something coming to life, in the, the, in the case of Jurassic Park, an entire dinosaur. Well, no, I, I mean, it is possible to reconstruct entire viral genomes. The reasons for doing it are not to cause a risk to the public or just for fun. If you, for example, take an ancient virus and you discover that the proteins of that ancient virus function in a similar way to modern viruses, that's telling you that that interaction is something very well conserved. If it hasn't changed over many, many millions of years, then that's a relationship between the host and the virus, which is obviously fundamental. And that defines it as a good target for a treatment. So finally, Robert, for any of us who have cursed the times when we have a cold or a flu and, and sort of worry about our own immune systems, what you're saying is our immune systems are actually, as a human species, much hardier than we might imagine, given all that we've had to fend off, viruses being one of the agents, over millions of years. Yes. We don't give them enough credit, I don't think. The viruses are our immune systems. Our immune systems. So what we're not really aware of is that we're surrounded by viruses all the time, and every day we're bombarded with potential infections. And the only reason we're able to survive is because we have these, these very well-honed defences. Robert Gifford, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Robert Gifford is an evolutionary virologist at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center of Rockefeller University. Up next, how to nip global pandemics in their tiny viral buds, and an editor of Wired magazine on how cultural ideas go viral. Now that we have a better idea of what viruses are, well, okay, we haven't yet resolved whether they're alive. But we know enough to know that we want to keep an eye on them when we can see them with a microscope. Viral ecologist Nathan Wolf has begun an independent research institute to do just that. And it's called Global Viral Forecasting. His book, The Viral Storm, The Dawn of a New Pandemic Age, 
It sounds alarming. I mean, all these new viruses emerging and so forth, but the title refers just as well to a new age of monitoring viruses and his company's plans for predicting where they're going to emerge and stopping them before they go global. And one of the things that we've been really focused on to sort of add to the system over the last few years is what we call digital surveillance and sort of digital epidemiology. And this is a very exciting new movement that's really started. There's, there's a few players that are doing this, but it's a very small group of scientists and researchers like ourselves that are, are focused on what are the signals out there in the digital realm that will tell us where an outbreak is occurring. And so we have some incredibly bright computer scientists working right here in our headquarters who are focused on creating these fascinating new systems using cutting-edge information technology and computer science to basically crawl the web and look through blogs and tweets and all these different feeds to see evidence of exactly where these outbreaks are occurring. So if, if someone is getting sick in, in Cameroon, how does that end up on a blog or on the web? Yeah, you would be amazed at the number of reports that occur that end up being you know, posted somewhere online. Increasingly, even in many of these African countries, you'll have uh, people that'll be writing a local news article. Uh, and believe it or not, there's no one that's screening through these sorts of data sets to find sort of the needle in the haystack of this moment where somebody's reporting on something. Because you can imagine, even though we're in 20 countries around the world, we're not able to be in every place at any one time. So what we want to do is find sort of these little signals. And the easiest way to do it is to really look in the space of open source intelligence and see what's out there. And we've, we've uh, I can't tell you about sort of all the work we're doing on this. We're sort of in a in, in a very sort of private beta mode on this, but we're seeing some, some fascinating results in outbreaks that occur and really catching them before different sources that you traditionally would imagine are actually seeing these outbreaks happen. So to be clear that someone actually gets sick and then they, they write about it or a news or a reporter writes about it or they share that information with friends or a number of people get sick and you're tracking that conversation that is happening locally to give you an idea of what might be coming? Look, outbreaks occur constantly on the planet. Individuals getting sick, you know, one day we're gonna be able to aggregate that through all kinds of interesting technologies. But for the moment, what we're focused on is largely when do a number of individuals die in the same community? And often those will trigger a local news article or a blog post or a tweet or something like this. It's, you know, and theoretically you could get down to the resolution where it's individual illness. But some of this is, is just going to be identifying more outbreaks. There are outbreaks that occur constantly that nobody traces, that nobody follows up on, that nobody, you know, we have this vision of a very effective global public health system. But I think that when people in future generations look back, they're not going to see that at all. They're going to see Swiss cheese. They're going to see that we miss most of these events where individuals get sick in groups and where even individuals die in groups, that they largely will go to their own doctors and we don't see the patterns of illness. And what we drastically need is new methods for identifying those so that we can go and identify the viruses that are causing those particular outbreaks before they end up spreading. So, I mean, if you think back to, say, the E. coli outbreak in Central Europe, you know, that's a perfect example. That was a situation where there was going to be many, many events 
where individuals are going to be reporting in local news illness before it sort of hit the radar of the global health community, before WHO reported on it. And the idea is to mine data that exists in sort of open source intelligence all throughout the web that exists on these events and to be able to capture it days or even weeks earlier than it's seen in sort of traditional surveillance systems. And this, these, these systems are real and they'll be online in the near future and they're going to give us you know, tremendous capacity as sort of individuals, governments, and corporations to really understand and catch these things early and respond to them in ways that are much more informed. Nathan Wolf is a viral ecologist, founder of Global Viral Forecasting, and author of The Viral Storm, The Dawn of a New Pandemic Age. It would seem that a digital surveillance system to catch viruses would be completely natural, since it's by means of digital communication technology that ideas go viral. The idea of something going viral, at least in modern culture, I don't know what it was like back with our ancient ancestors, is when a bit of content, a YouTube video, an email joke or whatever, makes a sudden leap in popularity and then it's everywhere. Seth, what might it have been for our ancient ancestors if it wasn't a YouTube video? Well, it would be the graffiti on the walls of Roman towns. Okay. Well, at any rate, it's everywhere. Bill Wasik is a senior editor at Wired magazine. He's not everywhere, but his book is. And then there's this, How Stories Live and Die in Viral Culture. A viral idea can be good or bad, but fundamentally... To me, what makes something viral is the sort of incredible speed with which people are passing it around. You know, I I think I see this generally every day with some little bit of content where suddenly all of these disconnected feeds featuring a wide variety of stuff, you suddenly see the same thing flip up, you know, there it is in Facebook, there it is in Twitter, and there are multiple people on Twitter, and suddenly it's coming into your email, oh, did you see this? It's that idea of kind of critical mass, like the idea that something has become so urgent and so sort of culturally vital in the heat of this moment that everyone seems to be passing it around. When I think of the things that I've seen that have apparently gone viral, and I know they've gone viral because somebody told me they had gone viral, (laughs) you know, a lot of them are kind of, I mean, they're entertaining, they're amusing, but they don't really improve my quality of life except for the brief period of time during which they entertain me. So how do we regulate our lives so we don't waste all our time being amused by viral messages? No, it's definitely a challenge. Um, Part of the pleasure of culture has always been shared experience. If you think about hit television shows, and I think this was especially true back in the days of, you know, just a few broadcast networks, a lot of the value of those shows to the people who watched it was, you know, that they were entertained while they were watching it. But also a lot of the value of watching the show was you go to the office the next day and you're talking about it. Today, it's harder and harder to get those mass cultural experiences because we have so many different streams of media that are coming into our lives, and they come in through hundreds of cable television channels. We are bombarded with media. One of the things that I think is both fantastic and also a bit troubling about viral stuff is that on the one hand, when something goes viral, 
it's able to essentially fill this function that we used to get from these shared mass cultural experiences that are harder to have. But then the flip side of it is that to keep up with it, to be up on what is new and what is viral and to take part in all those shared experiences is just overwhelming. And it just, you know, at any given point in time, there are three or five or 10 different things that you need to have seen in order to keep up with all the viral stuff that even that your your friends are, are engaged in. For myself, I don't feel like I can disengage from that world because it feels like the most vital part of our culture today. It sounds to me like you've been infected by the, uh, the virus of, of things that have gone viral. Well, this ability to rapidly spread cultural items couldn't that be used, wouldn't that be used by, for example, corporations interested in selling, I don't know, their latest movie or, or an automobile or some other product? I mean, haven't they seen the value in going viral in terms of spreading the word about their product? No, absolutely. And they, they've been trying to do it at this point for more than 10 years. Um, and some of them succeed. But the way that they succeed is that they make something that people really enjoy watching and want to pass along to their friends. And one consequence of that is that a lot of times viral advertising, so to speak, doesn't really function very effectively as advertising. Because if you put out something that is so explicitly an ad, then people sort of recoil at the idea that they're going to pass that along to their social network. What corporations can't do is force people to spread a message that they don't want to spread. You know, I, I sometimes analogize it to hypnotism, you know, that as they say about hypnotists, you know, they can make you do a lot of things, but they can't make you do something that fundamentally you really, really don't want to do. Can, can, can you give me an example of a successful viral campaign? Uh, sure. Old Spice did a really fun campaign where they had this actor who would read out people's tweets from their Twitter feeds in this sort of like really big kind of bombastic voice. And he was, you know, shirtless and really intense. And then people would send him messages and he'd, he'd send back messages to them. You know, it became this long running campaign and it succeeded in part because this actor was just so funny and he was so well chosen. It was just such an outrageous stunt and the overall effect was just so hilarious. But it also succeeded because you could send your friend a link to one of these videos and not feel like the implicit message was, oh, you know, Old Spice is an awesome product and you need to use it for reasons X, Y, and Z. You didn't feel when you were passing a link to one of these things that you were you would somehow become a shill for the company. But did it build long-term loyalty for uh, Old Spice uh, or, or was it just sort of a one-off? That, that's the question. I mean, I, I use Old Spice, but I've always used it, so I don't really know. But, but I mean, that is the question. It's something that's very, very difficult to manage. There are a lot of people who get paid a lot of money trying to answer that question, but I don't think that any of them have done it definitively yet. I think that a lot of these viral ad campaigns, even the ones that succeed, have essentially created a lot of free entertainment for people. I can remember personally a whole lot of very clever advertisements for which I don't remember the product. Bill, going viral, I mean, obviously that's a metaphor. Is it a very accurate metaphor? Are there any limits here to going viral in the cultural sense as opposed to going viral in the sense of microscopic viruses? You know, I think that it, it is a useful metaphor because it really gets at this new way that we communicate and this new way that culture can spread, which is in a lot of ways like a virus. You know, I spread it to you and you spread it to somebody else and they spread it to somebody else. And there tends to be kind of a half-life to that process, you know, where there's a there's a spike in which lots of people get infected, as it were, and then eventually the contagion sort of burns itself out. 
I do also think that there are crucial limits to it. And the main limit is real viruses use us as ways to spread themselves. And some people talk about viral content in that way that, you know, that, that a certain video is just so, you know, infectious that it literally is the thing that's causing us to, you know, move our hand to the mouse to press the send button. But of course, that's not really how it works. And in fact, even the decisions that we make in a moment-to-moment way about what we're going to send to our friends, we make a lot of calculations about who in our lives would be interested in this and who wouldn't. You know, we might send something to our mom that we wouldn't send to our wife, or we might send something to, you know, our buddies from college that we wouldn't send to our coworkers. We serve as these kinds of conduits for passing culture along. Even in those moment-to-moment decisions, we're playing a very active role. We're curating stuff for our friends. We're making a decision. And so, you know, even though viral describes kind of the path and the speed and the intensity of the spread, there's something that's a lot more interesting and sophisticated going on with our own decision-making and spreading stuff. Going viral, obviously you're hooked on the idea and you're an innovator in the technology to do it. Now it seems you're interested in biological viruses. Is that right? I understand you're working on a book about rabies. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, uh, my wife is a veterinarian, and she and I have just finished a history of rabies going back to ancient times. You know, my first book was about viral culture, and then, you know, the second book is about an actual virus. And uh, I didn't even make that connection until I, I mentioned, I think it was my book agent, that, I, oh, I want to do this book about rabies. And she didn't even blink an eye. She's sort of like, oh, you know, you go from viral culture to an actual virus. But it hadn't even crossed my mind because it's, you know, viral culture at the end of the day really is a metaphor, whereas metaphorical dimensions of a real virus are so much more kind of deep and rich and crazy and, and sinister. Bill Wasik, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you, Seth. Bill Wasik is a senior editor at Wired Magazine and the author of And Then There's This, How Stories Live and Die in Viral Culture. One of the interesting things about the whole viral phenomenon, Molly, is the the idea that we do it for the social experience. We don't all watch I Love Lucy or the nightly network news like we used to, but we can all be tuned into what's gone viral on the Internet. Right, and going viral in the jungle or going viral within us is something completely different. And I'm encouraged by the work that Nathan Wolf is doing on monitoring these viruses, these biological viruses, before they get us. Before I go Mustang. I have no idea what that means, but I guess if we say it enough times, maybe that will go viral. (laughs) Thanks to our larger-than-life production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Going Viral. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website, and then you can recommend the show to a friend who will recommend it to another friend, and to another, and to another, and to another, and to another, and to another. And uh, while you're online, why not become a fan of the program on Facebook? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science. Science.